Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, hey, I'm really excited for today. This is the, uh, I'm kind of sad, actually, because this is the last in this uh, three-week series. Um, so if you haven't been here, this will be kind of a, a wrap-up, but I'm not going to piggyback too much on, on what I've talked about in the first two weeks. Um, but I, I wanted to do this. Can you just turn to someone, and um, hopefully you're, you're sitting, at least one of you have been here before. Can you just turn to someone and share with them over the past two weeks as we've been going through this series, what are some of the most significant things you feel like God has been saying to you? What has he been speaking to you or teaching you about worship? Can you think about it for like two seconds and then go? Just for like 10 seconds each, can you just share with each other? And then uh, we'll come back here and, and we'll get started. Can you say to the person next to you, I'm excited for worship today? Okay. Um, as we come back here, um, I want to say that for the past couple weeks, as I've been not only like preaching these two messages about how big is our God thoughts on, on worship, as I've been preaching, but even as I've been like preparing for these messages and, and for today's message as well, um, I've been really challenged. Like I want to give my best worship to God. Anyone like that? Anyone feeling that? Like I want to, uh, I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I made it or for the thing I made it. Uh, it's all about you, God, and I want to give better worship. Does anyone feel like that or is it just me by myself? Okay. It's like four of us. Okay. Um, but I realize as I live throughout the week, like I know, man, it's a heart. It's not the art. It's, it's about just giving my best to God. I got to do that. And, and when, when things get hard, when there's pressure, when I'm in the fire, I need to worship God. I know all those things. But when I get into life, like when life starts hitting me, when it's Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, and, and life becomes real, it becomes a challenge for me to really live out the things that I know. I, it becomes a challenge for me to worship God. Has anyone felt that struggle also? I, I think... I think we have because the reality is that the Bible tells us that we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. There's a war going on for our worship, and there's an enemy of our souls, an enemy of God, who wants to fight for the worship and the supremacy of our hearts. If, if it's not God, then the enemy wins. Okay, You don't have to be a devil worshiper for the devil to win, as long as you take your eyes off of God. And so I thought about this this week. Like, if I was the devil, <laughs> and I'm not, but if I were the devil, what would I do to try and hinder you as a Christian from living full out for God? And what would be some of the things that I would do to keep the kingdom of God from advancing? I'd say, one, um, I would definitely try to keep you from evangelism. Totally. Like I would, and that, C.S. Lewis says that in screw tape letters. He said, I would convince Christians that they have time. Take away the urgency. They don't need to share the gospel with people. So I would convince you that you've got time. I'd let you have your Christian gatherings. You could do whatever. You could have your house churches. That's fine. And even be blessed in it as long as you don't take that outward and bring other people to the saving knowledge of Jesus. I give you your fellowship times as long as it stops there and doesn't move to evangelism. If I was the devil, I would do that. The second thing that I might do in no particular order, but I would then begin to attack your fellowship. 
I would make you guys get jealous of each other, start gossiping amongst each other, start hating each other, looking at it. Maybe I'd, I don't know what I would, what I would do to, to bring conflict and, and to disrupt your relationships so that there's nothing winsome, nothing beautiful for unbelievers to want to be a part of when you guys gather. That's the second thing I do. I would definitely try to cut the legs off of your prayer life because I know parenting without prayer is not going to get very far. I know that your, your, your prayerless preaching is not going to get very far. Your prayerless house churches won't get very far. Prayerless Bible studying is not going to get very far. So I would cut you from your power source by distracting you from praying. I would distract you from reading the word of God. Because this is your sustenance, how you get strong. We don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the word of God. I would cut your time in the word of God and distract you so that when it's time to read the word... Maybe a TV show comes on that you want to watch or you get, an, uh, you get a text message or, so, or you start like looking at the things on your desk, whatever it might be. I would hinder you from those things. And probably if I was a devil, the one thing I'd try to get you, keep you from doing more than anything else is to keep you from giving your worship to God. Not just because worship is awesome for you and that's what you were made to do. The reason I would do that is because whenever you worship God and declare the greatness of God, Jesus alone, he is my victory, you proclaim the defeat of Satan. And I, if I were the devil, would not want you to constantly be rubbing that in my face. Therefore, if I were the devil, I would do whatever I could to keep you from worship. Don't you feel that sometimes? That, that, that battle for worship in your heart, the battle for supremacy in your heart. That's why we've talked about this a lot. You get into fights right before you come to church on, on, on Sunday so that your heart is divided. Some of you fight at church <laughs> while we're in the midst of our worship service, right? And, and the enemy is fighting for our worship. Maybe it's that person that you despise. They walk right in front of you as you're about to begin this time of worship, and all of a sudden your mind goes in a million different places. Or that person you're infatuated with sits right next to you and says, can I sit here and worship God together? And all of a sudden your mind is thinking about not how beautiful is Jesus, but how beautiful is your hair today, whatever it is that, that distracts us from the worship. If I were the enemy, I would do whatever I could to keep you from worshiping God. That means when things are going well, I would tempt you to think <laughs> the things that are going well about life are actually better than God. Or the things that are going good about life, you earned those. You deserve those things. God didn't help you get it. You did that on your own to keep you from worshiping God when things are going well and when things are going bad to distract you, to keep you from thinking that God is good, to cause you to question, is God really good? Does he really care for me? And when a million thoughts go through our mind, when things are going bad, the enemy tries to keep you from worshiping God. If I were the devil, I would do whatever I could to keep you from worshiping, declaring the greatness of God and the defeat of my domain. In Acts chapter 16, that's what we see, and I want to bring out a couple really huge principles for our life that I think are massive, okay, massive, uh, that can change your life and can I don't want to promise too much, but I really do believe that this can change any time the word of God is preached. I believe it will change your life, and it can change uh, and impact countless people through it. And so I'm hoping and I'm praying 
for that to happen. But what's happening here in Acts chapter 16, there's a guy named Paul. He was like the great, first great missionary or the, the great missionary statesman who started much of what is called Christianity after he took these teachings from uh, those who followed Jesus and, 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 and took it to a bunch of different places throughout um, the known world. See, he's, he's uh, hanging out in this particular place and he gets a vision from a a man from a place called Macedonia, which is kind of like Greek, the Greek area, he gets a vision of this man, and the man says, come to Macedonia and help us. We need the gospel. We need Jesus. Come to us. And so Paul, in obedience, goes, and he goes to a place called Philippi, which is like the Normandy, the, the beach of Normandy. This is like the inroads, the major, this is like the heart of Macedonian territory. And Paul goes, and when he gets there, he meets this girl named Lydia and a bunch of other people who want to know who God is, but they they don't know the name of Jesus, but they're ready. Their hearts are ready. Paul shares the gospel with them, and they get baptized. They put their trust in Jesus, and this becomes the foundation for the church in Philippi, to whom Paul would later write a letter, the letter of Philippians. So this becomes the, the, the uh, foundation of the church and is the beachhead for the church in Europe to begin to grow from that place. So it's a pretty good day. Things are going really well. And when things are going well, that's oftentimes when the enemy seeks to attack you to keep you from worshiping. And this is what happens in Acts 16, verse 16. So Paul writes, or I'm sorry, Luke. So Luke is writing Acts. And so this missionary dream team is like Luke, who wrote this, one of uh, the gospel writers. There's Luke, there's Paul, there's a guy named Silas, and there's a guy named Timothy. Okay, these are big shots in the New Testament. They're the dream team here. It says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled, literally so annoyed, that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. That moment the Spirit left her. When the owner of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, hey, these men, they're Jews. They're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we all here. Jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is God's word. Man. This is exciting. Like, this is amazing. So 
Paul starts this church with these women, right? Or starts his, has, a, has a foundation, a group of believers. And then as he's going along, they're going on their way to pray, right? Do something for God. They're on their way to pray. And there's this demon-possessed girl, okay? She's a slave girl who has been bought by some dudes because she's possessed by an evil spirit. Literally, it says it's a python spirit, which was one of the major gods of, of Philippi. And through that spirit, she was able to predict the future, fortune-telling. Right? These, some of these things still happen today. Uh, some of these fortune tellers, palm readers, psychics are like wacky and, and, and just like a big hoax. But others of them possessed by spirits do weird things like this. And so um, she's one of those weird ones, possessed by a spirit so she could tell the future. And so these guys who owned her were making tons of money off of people who wanted to know what's going to happen in my future. And as she tells the future, they're making bank off of it. So she meets Paul and Silas, and she starts walking around, following them around, and she's kind of, I mean, the, the picture you get is the little dude who comes out before the big rappers and waving their towel around and being the hype man for it. That's not what she is. But she's saying, hey, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. So she's like speaking all this stuff, but she's not actually for them. She's mocking them. Possessed by an evil spirit, she's mocking them. William Bates says, hey, the devil will tell you a hundred things that are true in order that you would begin to believe the hundred and first thing that he tells you. So speaking truth, yet not in a way to support them. Hey, guys, come and listen. These are servants of the Most High God. Not, she's not saying that. She's like, hey, come and listen. These guys. And so Paul's getting annoyed, and he's troubled, and he's put up with this. It says, for many days, after, uh, for many days she kept this up. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And, he, and, she, and the Spirit leaves her. And she becomes exorcised of that demon, and she's in her right mind. Her owners obviously have lost their cash cow now. They've lost their moneymaker, and so uh, they're angry. They drag Paul and Silas, literally it says they drag him by the feet into the town square. They accuse him, and the magistrates say, beat him. Take off their clothes, strip him. They get beaten. Paul writes in, in the Corinthian correspondence that he, three times he was beaten with the rods, 40 lashes minus one. What does that mean? Typically, it was thought to be believed that if you got beaten 40 times on your back, you die. So when they say 40 lashes minus one, this is the worst penalty short of capital punishment, right? Short of death, it's 40 lashes minus one. So most likely, this is how Paul and Silas get beaten. Their backs are shredded. And what started out as a really good foray into Philippi has turned very quickly into a pretty bad day, would you say? It's a bad day for Paul and Silas. But what do they do and how do they respond? And how do we respond when we're having a bad day? It makes all the difference in the world. Two thoughts here. Here's the first thing, okay? Here's the first thing. Um, when you're having a bad day, uh, choose to praise God. Uh, I know this sounds kind of like uh, let's ignore all of our problems and just start like put your head in the clouds and, and praise God. But let me, what's happening here? So Paul and Silas have been beaten. Their backs are, are, are bloodied to a pulp, and they're thrown in. Where, where do they go? They go into the prison. It says they were severely flogged, and it says in verse 24, upon re receiving such orders, the jailer put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Very important here. The inner cell of a prison, this is not like a nice prison, like a four-star hotel. This is a Philippian dungeon, which was dark. It was run over by rats. It was infested with all kinds of other living creatures. And the inner cell was the deepest part of the dungeon, which was in the 
furthest basement that you can go, and it's where all of the human waste flowed, flowed downhill, and so it collected in the cells in which Paul and Silas were staying. All of the urine, all of the poop, all of that stuff would flow down that way, and it would collect in that area in the inner cell of the dungeon. Here they are. It's dark. It's dank. It's disgusting. It's dreary. It's dung-filled in the dungeon, and they're sitting there, and their feet get placed in stocks. Okay, You know, like you go to a, a pirate's cove, or whatever um, putt-putt place, and they've got these photo opportunities where there's holes in planks of wood, and you put your head through and you put your hand through. These are called stocks. And what they did was they put, had these guys sit down, and the stocks were put in their feet, on their feet. So their feet were hanging through these stocks, and wood was placed on them so they couldn't move. And what they did with these stocks was that they spread the holes as far out as they could so in the midst of a beaten and abused state... Tired and dehydrated, their legs would be spread out in such a way that cramping would be induced through the positioning of their legs. They're sitting in poop. They're being visited by rats. Their bodies have been beaten. Their legs are cramping. They can do nothing. And what do they do? If this is you, what do you do? Okay, you're a missionary, right? You are the apostle Paul, what do you do? If this is me, I'm saying, hey, Silas, um, let's just go to sleep. We're tired. I'm sure you're tired. Let's call it a night. We'll wake up early for morning prayer tomorrow, but tonight let's just go to sleep. Completely justified, I would say. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. What in the world is that? I would imagine at midnight the other prisoners are trying to sleep, but for whatever reason, Paul and Silas are singing, and when it says they're praying, literally it says they're praying praises to God and singing their hymns to God. They're praising in the midst of their prison while other people are listening. That's not normal. Can I ask you what you would do if that was you? Your back has been shredded. You're sitting in filth. You're in prison. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Can I tell you that there are a few options that we have? I think for a lot of people, when they're sitting in prison in the midst of a bad day, a lot of us, we lose worship. <laughs> That's the last thing I want to do. Man, I'm in here because of you, God. You, I, was, I was just telling people about you. And look at me here. A lot of us lose worship. What does this mean? For, for VBS this summer, Vacation Bible School, that's like our kids' program uh, during the summer for a week long. The theme this year was roar. <laughs> when life is wild, God is good. And so each day of VBS, uh, the children learned a different theme. Okay? When life is unfair, God is still good. Okay? When life is scary, God is good. When life is crazy, God is good. When life is sad, God is good. When life changes, God is good. When life is good, God is good. No matter what, God is worthy of our praise. So here we were at house church a couple weeks ago. The kids were all in one room. The grown-ups were in another room. And the kids, uh, one of the kids, Elise, our, our little one, um, this happens probably once every house church meeting. She comes out crying. And so she's like, ah, well, crying, sad, life is terrible, ah, oh, ha, ha, ha. And so um, she goes to one of, the, uh, one of the older girls in our house church, and she says, it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. It's not fair. So apparently something that happened in the kids' room was not fair to Elise, and she was crying. 
And so the older girl, I think it was, I think it was Louisa or Marissa, I forget which one it was, um, I just heard her say, Elise, when life is unfair, God is good, right? <laughs> and then I heard Elise cry louder, and she said, no, <laughs> no, it's not true. God is not good when life is unfair. Some of us are like, actually, a lot of us are like Elise when life is unfair. When things are not going well, it's hard for us to believe that God is good, isn't it? Isn't that the temptation in our hearts? When things are not going well, God, I was doing this for you. I have been unjustly accused, arrested, beaten, incarcerated. Life's not fair. But instead of losing worship, can I tell you what they did? They, this is going to be cheesy, but they oozed worship out of their hearts. You know, the Apostle Paul, this cat was always worshiping God, always praising God, always praising God. And so when the pressure came, you squeeze an orange, you squeeze an orange, a juicy, juicy orange, what comes out? Not grape juice, right? Orange juice comes out, right? Because what's inside of it comes out when pressure is applied. What happens when pressure is applied in your life? What comes out? Does complaining come out? Because out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. The temptation for many of us is to lose worship, but these guys were oozing worship out of them. As their backs were oozing blood, their hearts were oozing worship. What about you? When you go through prison experiences, Based on what some people write on social media, we're not oozing all that much goodness sometimes. But if we praise before we get into the prison, then it's a really good indicator that we're going to praise when we're in the prison. Because when the pressure is applied, we will ooze out what is inside of us. A few um, months ago in the spring, I was up in Virginia uh, for, a, for a wedding my parents live in Virginia, but at the time, they were out of town. So they were out of town, and they were coming in town when I was up in Virginia. So they asked me to go pick them up at the airport. Their flight was coming in at, at 10 p.m. into Dulles Airport. So I'm waiting uh, about 9.30. I'm about to head out, and I get a message saying, flight got delayed because of weather. We're coming in at 11. So I was like, all right, um, just keep me posted. Uh, 11 o'clock changed to 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock changed to 1 o'clock until finally about 1.15 they said, all right, we're coming in at 1.15. I had since gone to sleep. I was tired. I was like, man, I was getting angry. You know how like when, okay, maybe it's just me, but when someone's flight is delayed, like instead of blaming the flight or the weather, you blame the person. So I'm like blaming the people. I'm like, man, mom and dad, how come you're making me like stay up so late? And this is really bad. And so at, at um, 1.15, uh, okay, the, the plane is actually going to land. So I, I got my car, and I had fallen asleep. They're like, all right, we're here. Take your time. I'm like 35 minutes to get there. So I'm like flying down uh, the Dulles Access Road in order to get there. It's dark. I'm tired. It's like 1.30 in the morning. And I say, I've got a, I've got a choice right now. Either I'm going to be angry, and if I am, then I'm not going to give my parents a warm welcome, or I could worship God. Yeah. What do you think I did? <laughs> Usually, uh, you would think that I chose to get angry, but this time I chose to worship God. Yeah, surprise, surprise, right? Jeez. <laughs> so I got out my Spotify playlist, the playlist that I labeled worship, and I started jamming out to it. Okay? It's one thing to listen. It's another thing to sing. So I'm singing, you are worthy of it all. And it was like so awesome. It's like raining outside, but I'm driving like NASCAR driver. My eyes are closed worshiping God. I'm just kidding. 
I'm driving. I'm like, dude, this is amazing. God, you're so good. And I'm singing, and my heart is so filled. I'm like, man, it's 1.45 at night, but this is going to be a great day. I'm going to pick up my parents. I'm going to love them, even though their flight got delayed for four hours. I'm so excited. I'm worshiping God, and then I get pulled over by a cop. <laughs> what in the world? I was like, God, you can't do that. I was, I was singing to you. I was worshiping you. I wasn't angry. I could understand if I was angry and I got pulled over. I was worshiping you. So I said, God, you owe me one here because I was giving you praise. There was a battle for my worship, and I was helping you to win by declaring the defeat of Satan. You are worthy, God. So can you just do me one here, and can you let this cop let me go with just a warning? Yeah. What do you think happened? 500. He did not let me go with just a warning. He gave me a ticket. A speeding ticket. He didn't ask me, do you know how fast you're going or why were you going so fast I could have this like great story. I'm a pastor. And I was worshiping God on my way to pick up my parents from the airport. And he didn't ask any of that stuff. I got my ticket. And I was like, man, that's really a bummer. And so now I have this choice. What am I going to do? Okay, it's the same thing 30 minutes earlier. Do I, I have a choice to get angry? I have a choice to worship. And I knew in my heart there's a battle for worship going on here. And for whatever, and, and again, this doesn't usually happen like this. I usually mess up, but this time I decided I'm going to worship God. I'm going to worship God. And as I thought about that response, I was, I, was, I was proud of myself for doing that. But I said to myself, I think the reason why I could worship God after I got a ticket is because I was worshiping God before I got a ticket. And in that place... The praise was oozing out of my heart because the fact of me getting a ticket does not change the fact that God is worthy of my praise. God didn't tell me to go 80 miles an hour in a whatever zone it was, right? That was a choice that I made, and it doesn't negate the fact that God is worthy of all of my life. Some of us lose worship when hard times come. Some of us ooze worship, but I think this is where probably the great majority of us are. The great majority of us are in a place where we need to choose worship in that moment. And we have a choice. Maybe it's the Apostle Pauls and the Silas who ooze worship, but the, most of us aren't praising God at midnight, not in a jail cell, not in the way that they are, but we have a choice to do that. And Paul chose to worship God. When you have someone going through a hard time, if you do give them advice, I always tell our people, listen, love, and pray. But if you need to speak, then this is what I would say. The best encouragement, the best advice you could give someone is encourage them to worship God in the midst of their struggle. Right? To worship God in the midst of their pain. To worship God to get their gaze off of their prison and onto the prize. Off of their jail and onto their Jesus. To fix our eyes on him. This is a choice that Paul made. In fact, later on, he would write a letter to these people in Philippi, and he would be writing from jail. And he would tell them, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again in case you didn't hear me, in case that part got smudged in the writing. I'll say it again, rejoice. Not rejoice in your circumstances, rejoice in your prison, rejoice in the Lord, because he's always going to be worthy of your praise no matter what you find yourself in. Rejoice in the Lord and praise him. It's a choice that we have to make. It's a choice that in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John, they get beaten. 
and with the flesh hanging off of them, they go out praising God, considering themselves worthy, that they were considered worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus Christ. It's a choice that we have to make. And when we choose to worship, we choose to take our eyes off of the things around us. I mean, those things are real and they're there. But when other people are saying how big their jail is, they're saying how big their God is. And it's huge what they do. The first thing that I want to encourage us to, and speaking to myself as well, is that when you're having a bad day, choose to praise God. One, because it's good for your soul. It honors God. It defeats the enemy as it relates to the battle for worship. But second thing that we see here is that praise can open doors that were otherwise closed. Praise can open doors that were otherwise closed. Okay, so far what we're talking about, praise God in the midst of the difficult times, that's not much different from what you mentioned last week in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, praise God in the fires. But the second thing, this is huge, because praise can open doors that were otherwise shut or closed. What does that mean? When they choose to do this, okay, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. What's happening? When we begin to praise, can I tell you? When you praise, okay, Psalm 22.3 says this. Uh, It it says, I will will sing your praise in the midst of the congregation. It says that he inhabits the praises of his people. That means where Christ is praised, Christ is present. This is huge. They're saying, Paul and Silas are saying, we're in a place where we can't get out. The doors are locked. The the, the stocks are locked. All these things are locked to us, but we're going to choose to praise because this is how we're going to choose to fight our battles. Because there was nowhere else that they could go. And even if there was, you know that they would get, you, you get the sense that they would still have chosen to worship God in the midst of it. When we worship God, we're inviting God's presence. Where Christ is praised, where Christ is preached, that's why we constantly, we constantly are preaching Christ in this place because when Christ is preached, he's present, and when he's present, he changes people. Right? You cannot encounter God and not be changed. When we praise Christ, his presence dwells. Hebrews says the same thing. Psalm 22, three, uh, he inhabits the praise of people. Hebrews 13 puts those words on Jesus' own lips. In the midst of the congregation, when they sing, I am there with them. This is what Paul and Silas did, but it's also what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, right? In the midst of the fire, they worship God. They're saying, this is how we're going to choose to fight our battles with worship. It's what Joshua and the Israelites did. The walls of Jericho were fortified. These were locked. There's no way you're getting in. You're not going to overcome these fortified walls. But they walked around and they praised. They said, this is how we fight our battles here as a people of God. There's a different weapon that we fight with. 2 Chronicles 22.20, it's King Jehoshaphat as the Israelites are fighting against the Ammonites and the Moabites. How do they fight? How do they enter into the battle? They enter the battle with praise, and because of the worship that they offered up, everything was changed. They're inviting God into that place because they said there's more to the story. This looks like a dead-end battle, looks like a dead-end prison, looks like a dead-end situation we're in, but we're inviting you into this place in praise. Whenever we praise God, we're saying, God, there's got to be more to this story than what we're seeing. Every night before our kids go to bed, they uh, brush their teeth because that's what is, is good and right for them to do. 
So all of our kids brush their teeth except for Elise. Um, she's not allowed to in our house brush her teeth anymore because once we allowed her to do it, the next dental appointment she had, she was like tattooed with cavities. And so we took the toothbrush from her and said, you cannot brush your teeth anymore, okay? Mommy or daddy has to do it. And so um, when I, uh, probably I would say 90% of the day, Elise, if she had a choice, would choose Olivia over me. So I have to bribe her to let me brush her by telling her a story. So I say, Elise, come in. Bring your toothbrush to Daddy. I'll tell you a fun story. She loves, so she's been into like uh, choose-your-own-adventure stories, where I start telling her a story, and then I give her an option, and she has to choose. Is it Kevin or is it Jeff? Kevin, and I keep brushing her teeth. So Kevin did blah, 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 blah. And then he went to the bathroom. He had to go number one or number two? Number two. So Kevin went number two. Was there toilet paper or was there not? There was no toilet There was no toilet paper. So she loves these stories. They're telling these stories. But a lot of times because uh, they're choose-your-own-adventures, it takes a long time. And so we get to the end and the, the, uh, stop brushing her teeth. And I say, okay, Elise, to be continued. And she's like, oh, she wants to hear the rest of the story so bad. She's like, so, oh. so she brings her floss to me to floss her. And then she, after I'm done flossing, she brings another piece of floss. And she says, more flossing. You didn't get everything. And she just wants to hear the rest of the story. I say, Elise, you got to go to bed. Okay, daddy's tired. Next day, we'll tell more stories. So next night comes and she's excited. So she brings her toothbrush to me. And I'm Sometimes I get tired. I don't have the creative energy to tell another story. I told us I was excited yesterday. I had a good day, but today I've had a rough day, and I don't have anything to say. So I start brushing her, hoping that she'll forget. And after like 10 seconds into it, she wants me to tell the story, and I'm like, Elise, no. Daddy doesn't want to do it. So here's what she always says. As I'm brushing her, she pushes a toothbrush out of my mouth, and she goes, so then... <laughs> so then, what happened to Kevin. He's in the bathroom. So then, I'm like, all right, finally. So I have to tell her the rest of the story. Here's the point. When Paul and Silas and when you and I praise God in prison, we are saying whether we know it or not, God, so then we're waiting to see what you're going to do next because we know that it's not going to end here. We know that there's more to the story. And so we choose to worship you. We choose to praise you because what happens here, this is crazy. Okay. Uh, it, it says in verse 25, they're, they're uh, worshiping, they're praising. The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. At once the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. In this place, these prison doors which were locked, these stocks which were locked, the chains which were locked come undone. And because the other people are listening, they realize very clearly how this all happened. You know, my professor, Steve Brown, he used to say that whenever something hard happens to a non-believer, something hard happens to a believer as well, so that the unbeliever can see the difference in the way that they respond, can see the peace with which they respond, can see how they respond in a way that honors God and witnesses to him. So when, one, when a non-Christian loses his job, a Christian loses his job so that the unbeliever can see how we deal with the loss of a job. When an unbeliever gets rejected from a school, a believer gets rejected from a school in order that an unbelieving world could see the difference that Christ makes. Right, you can talk about how good your, and big your God is when things are going well, but it's when things are going difficult 
when things are hard, then people really see the goodness of God through your praises that are rising up to him. When one Christian, when a non-Christian gets thrown in prison, Christian gets thrown in prison so that through the praises that are lifted up, it wasn't just Paul and Silas's chains that were loosened. It said everyone's chains were loosened. But here's the crazy thing, okay? This was a miracle of miracles, obviously. Like how many times have you seen an earthquake come and open up things that were locked? Doesn't happen very often, at least not here. But the crazy thing is, I will venture to say that's not even the bigger miracle here. There's a bigger and greater miracle. The miracle of miracles here was not the locked prison doors, but it was the locked up hardened heart of the jailer. Because you realize in order for you to be a jailer, these were usually positions given to Roman soldiers who had witnessed countless crucifixions, countless people being beaten, countless people being murdered, countless people being uh, made examples of hardened, post-traumatic stress, angry, violent men who would guard these prisons in order that prisoners would not get out. Why does he draw the sword when he wakes up to kill himself? Because if a prisoner, if a jailer lost his prisoners, then a jailer lost his life. And so this miracle happens. The jail opens up. He wakes up to realize the prison doors are open. He's about to kill himself. And Paul says, wait. We're all here. We're all here. And the jailer is bewildered. Can I ask you again, if you were Paul, what would you do? Here I am. I've, man, this jailer, this fool has beat me to a pulp. I'm sitting in the midst of all kinds of stuff that I wouldn't put my worst enemy through. I've, been, I've just been tortured. I'm worshiping God, and through an act of God, the prison opens up. I'm a free man. You remember this in Acts chapter 12. Peter's in prison. He pray, they, the church is praying. The doors open up. He walks out a free man. This is Paul. He's like, this exact same thing happens. I know it's God doing it. I'm free. I should go. But why didn't he go? Why was he still there? The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think that the only reason Paul decided to stay in that prison was because a jailer who had beat his back to a pulp earlier that day was still a man in need of saving. And he knew that if he left, He'd be executed, but he stays because he believed that he was in prison for a reason, even if just for a night, because there was a jailer hardened by the brokenness of this world, stained by the sin and the violence of life, hardened, and his door, heart, heart, the door of his heart was just locked up, and yet when he was worshiping God in prison, the chains fell off of this man's heart as the chains fell off of their ankles. The reason he chose to stay was because there was a man who needed his salvation. Could it be, can I, 
Can I ask you who are going through difficult times in life, could it be that there is a prison guard in your life who needs to see you, whose heart is so hardened, but when he sees you praising God, that his heart is going to open up in a way that it couldn't by you simply talking to him? Could it be that the reason you're going through your hardship is because there is a son, a daughter, a mother, a father, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, a coworker, a fellow classmate in your life who desperately needs Jesus? And he's put you in that place because in the same way that they're going through the fire, you're going through the fire. In the same way you're going through prison, they're going through prison. And they need to see that there is a God who's worthy of praise even in the midst of their prison. And it would unlock things that were previously locked. In fact, do you, do, you have a, do you have a desire? Like, would you stay in prison for the sake of a person who desperately needed to hear the gospel? Are there people in your life right now that you're praying would come to know Jesus in this way? That even if you were put in prison, you would rejoice because you knew that this was an opportunity for them to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus through the canvas of your life, painting a picture of the greatness of God. Do you have that sense in your life where there are people who need to know Jesus that clearly you see that? so that you're willing to go through the prison and stay there and praise God in the midst of it in order that they might come to see the greatness of God. Not just by what you say, but by how you show that to them as you sit in prison. There are people in our lives that we're praying to come to know to Jesus in this way, and they're just waiting. They're just waiting. Just waiting to see that there's something different between you and the world in which, and the people who live in this world. They're just waiting to see all right, is she going to respond differently in the midst of this trial or will she be just like me? Is he going to respond differently in the midst of this prison or will he be just like me? Does Jesus make a difference when the chips are down? Because, you see, he sees God through Paul and Silas. He doesn't say earthquake happens, bam, 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 bam. Oh, my gosh, what was that on the Richter scale? He doesn't say that. <laughs> he doesn't say, oh, my goodness, can you do that again? That was mad cool. Oh my gosh, like, who are you guys? He doesn't say that. He comes out and he says, what must I do to be saved? He sees the greatness of God and he realizes, I, oh my gosh, I've seen God and I know that I'm not in a right place with him. What must I do in order to be, do, don't you say, I've, I've done all of these bad things. I've killed people. I've executed. I've been at the scene of their crucifixion and I've laughed at them, mocked them, jeered them. I've made fun of them. What do I need to do in order to reverse all of this stuff? And, Peter, and Paul says, it's not about you. There's nothing that you can do. And if there's one who knows, it's Paul. Because as bad as that jailer was, Paul may have been even worse. You remember he was Saul, the killer, the executioner, the put-in-jailer of Christians, hardened in his heart. And yet on one encounter with God, his life is changed forever. And so he goes and he says, all you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's it. That's it. Guys, we're all unworthy. None of us deserve it. None of us deserve to be saved. We've all blown it. We've all messed up. We've all failed. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's how we're going to make it to the end. What must I do? There's nothing you can do but wholly trust in the work of another. 
It's Jesus who did it. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's death, another's life, I stake my whole eternity. This is what Paul is saying. We give our lives, we trust in him because he alone can do what we could not do. And the change in his life is so profound that he goes home and he tells his wife, he tells his children, they're like, what the, daddy's back from jail, what is, what? and he's nice, he's different, what happened to him? And it says, his whole family believed. Because they saw through this man the greatness of God. Praise God. This is what God is doing. This is what we do. We start a chain reaction. When you're in the midst of a bad day, you're in the midst of a hard time, you're in the midst of prison, you praise God, chains fall off. People see indeed how great our God is. Prison doors open, hardened hearts open up. People declare the greatness of God and he draws people to himself. How big is your God? Our God is massive. He's huge. He's bigger than the world could know. And they need to see him, and they will see him when we praise him no matter what situation we find ourselves in. May that be our testimony. May we have many stories of people seeing through us the greatness of our God. Let's pray together. Are you going through a hard time? Brothers and sisters, are you going through times where you feel like Man, it's dark, it's dank, and it's dreary. And in many ways, the situation I found myself in is pretty disgusting. There's a battle for praise in your heart. There's a battle for worship in your heart. This is how we fight our battles. It's through praise, it's through worship. We declare the greatness of God. Been in many mission trips where things didn't go as planned in Ecuador, in Mexico, in Belize and Dominican Republic and China, the first thing the natives there did was they praised God. They said, this is how we're going to fight this battle. We're going to invite God into it. Spirit of worship worships God, whatever the circumstances, wherever we might be. Let's worship God. Let's praise him. Let's pray to the Lord. Father, make me a worshiper. Help me to see your worth that I might ooze worship out of my life. And when I can't, that I would choose worship. Pray for people who are going through hard times in the family of God that they would worship and choose to praise God in those moments. Pray for people in your life that you know aren't believers who need to see you praising God in good and bad. And after you've done praying for that, just take a few moments to lift up your own praise to God in your own words, in your own way. This is how we fight our battles, worshiping God and inviting him in. Let's pray for a minute. After we do that personal time of prayer and response, I'll pray for us and we'll continue to respond and worship the Lord. Thank you for your people. Lord, I believe that in here, your people really want to worship you. Sometimes we struggle in the battle for worship. 
because we get distracted and we get so busy. We get sidetracked and we get blinded. But Father, you remind us that you are worthy of all that we are and all that we have. Would you delight in the praise of your people because that's what you deserve, but it's also what we were made to do. And when we do that, we find that this is life. We find life at its highest possible way when we live for you to honor you and praise you through the fruit of our lips and through the actions of our lives. So, Father, we pray that you would make us into contagious kinds of worshipers who would lead others to see the greatness of God through us the way that Paul did, the way that this transformed jailer did. Make us into, yeah, make us into men and women of praise and worship for your glory that our lives would be a powerful testimony to our need for you and to the greatness of our God. Thank you. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.